You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to life. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Hear, O God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity. Let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now when Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and the, that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that, the, that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held spears, shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load in one hand, doing the work, and the other hand holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work, with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time I said to the people, Let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem, so that there may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes, each took his wep weapon even to the water." Now that's a lot of verses there, but we will dive in. As we face persecution, we must remain faithful in the midst of opposition. As we dive in here, we see Sanballat, and we've seen him before. He, he's against the people of God. He, he's against this work. He's, he's been opposing them before, starting there in chapter 2. But then he asks these slew of questions. What are these feeble Jews doing? He's insulting them. Are they, are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in, in a day? 
Can, can, can they revive these broken stones that have been burned? And is, is this the materials that they're going to use? And Tobiah jumps in, wanting in on the action. and says, look, what, what they're building, if a, if a little old fox jumps on this wall, it's going to just come crumbling down. And they're, they're being insulted. I imagine a group of guys sitting around saying similar things, laughing and making fun of Nehemiah and the people of Judah. He insults them. He calls into question their ability. He mocks their ability to get it done in a timely fashion and discusses the materials that they're using. And Tobiah jokes, making fun of the quality of their work. They are facing constant opposition. These guys constantly come at them. Let me tell you about Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott had felt a call to ministry and a ministry, a missionary had told them of the Hurani tribe in Ecuador. It's also called the, the Alka, which is the Quechua word for savage. This group of uh, indigenous people there in Ecuador were extremely violent and dangerous to outsiders. Now, Elliot remained unsure about whether to go uh, to Ecuador or India or, or wherever the Lord might call him. His parents and friends wondered if instead he might be more effective in youth ministry in the United States. But he considered the home church well-fed, and he felt that international missions should take precedence. So Elliot and his group, Ed McCauley, Roger Yoderin, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint, who was their pilot, they made contact from their Piper PA-14 airplane with the Harani using a loudspeaker and a basket to pass down gifts to them. After several months, they decided to build a base a short distance from this village along the river. There they were approached one time by a small group of the Harani people and gave an airplane ride to one of them. Encouraged by these friendly encounters, they began plans to visit the Harani people. Their plans were preempted by an arrival of a large group of about 10 Harani warriors who killed Elliot and his four companions on January 8th of 1956. Jim Elliot was the first of the five missionaries killed when he and Peter Fleming were greeting two of those attackers. His body found downstream along with those of the other men. Several years after the death of these men, the widow of Jim Elliot, Elizabeth, and the sister of Nate Saint, Rachel. They returned to Ecuador as missionaries with the Summer Institute of Linguistics to live among these same people that killed their husband and brother. This eventually led to the conversion of many, including some of those warriors who speared the men. And perhaps... Church, we won't be speared to death. But persecution will come to those who love God and are faithful to his gospel. What we see in Nehemiah is the fact that they stayed focused on the wall, as we'll see in a moment. And, and as the missionary I spoke about, Jim Elliott, was speared along with his com companions, his wife and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel. They didn't give up on the mission. They went to this tribe continuing to work to bring the gospel to them. Because the mission doesn't end when there's persecution. 
one of the early church fathers named Tertullian, the second century, is known for saying this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Persecution, which is intended to stop the church, is often the fuel to get the church going. Dear church, just as Nehemiah experienced opposition, God's people have continuously faced opposition before Christ and after Christ for being committed to God's plan. Jesus himself was clear that in John 15, verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Paul told Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, why is that? Because godliness goes against the grain of the culture. People will hate you and persecute you simply for living a life of godliness. And even more so if you open your mouth and share the gospel. Church, we will face persecution. But church, let us remain faithful in the midst of opposition. The need is great. There are countless souls who will perish in hell apart from salvation through Christ alone. So in the face of opposition, may we remain faithful. The second thing I want us to draw out here is as we face persecution, we must pray for God's justice to be accomplished. While we will experience persecution, it's never the Christian's responsibility to retaliate. When these strong words were hurled against God's people, Nehemiah took his strong words to God. What we have in the next verses here in verse 4 and 5 are what's called an imprecatory prayer. Let's, what, let's, let's see what Nehemiah says here. It says, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. And certainly they are. They've been despised and hated by Sanballat, Tobiah, and his crew. This is what he prays. Return their reproach on their own heads. Give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. They're saying, God, we want you to do to them what happened to us. We've been in captivity. Now, send them to captivity. Praying for God's judgment. Look at verse 5. Nehemiah gets even bolder. Do not forgive their iniquity. And let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. This seems a bit much, doesn't it? Maybe you say, Pastor, well, aren't we to, aren't we to pray for the salvation of sinners? Aren't we to pray for people to be forgiven of their sin and, and for them to find salvation? Yes. But that's not inconsistent with praying for God's just justice. Those who do not repent, those who set themselves up against God, those who stand in opposition to God and his people will experience the just wrath of God. But that's God's to deal out. That's not ours. We see imprecatory prayers all throughout the Bible. Psalm 137 is a psalm of Judah in Babylonian captivity. It begins, it says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. They're, they're, they're in Babylonian captivity. They're weeping because they remember what they had. 
As it continues in verse 4, they ask, how, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How, how, can we, how can we worship? How can we praise God when we're in this situation? And then when we get to verses 8 and 9, it's even crazier. Psalm 137, 8 and 9 says this, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now friends, if you don't have a knee-jerk reaction to this like I do, then something's wrong. Like when I read this, I'm like, well, hold on a minute. Listen guys, I know, I know captivity is pretty rough. I know Babylonian captivity is bad. You've had a hard road, but, but really? We shouldn't want God to torture children by dashing them against rocks. And some of you might be saying, Pastor, you don't know my kid. Okay, well, come to counseling on Monday. We'll sort this out. This seems a bit crazy, doesn't it? But this is in God's word, so what's going on here? This is a, a prayer for God's justice. God, stand against those who oppose you and your people. One commentator in the Psalms says this, The haters of the church, as they are guilty of great sin, will, without timely repentance, come to a bad end. Let them remember the calamity of Esau. Let them not forget the doom of the golden city. A captivity may last 70 years, but then comes deliverance. The doom of persecutors and of those who approve their ways is certain and fearful. The state of the church at the worst is better than that of Babylon or any state of her adversaries. And precatory prayers, the, these, these prayers that we see of, of praying for their sins not to be forgiven, for this, this horrible one of these little kids being dashed against rocks. This wasn't the prayer of somebody that was just having a bad day or didn't get enough coffee that morning. These were prayers for God's judgment to be executed on those who hate God and oppress his people. It's a prominent pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, named Andy Stanley. He's the son of faithful Bible teacher and pastor Charles Stanley. And Andy said several years ago that Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Essentially discrediting the entire Old Testament. Because he doesn't know how to reconcile such harsh psalms and words like we find in Nehemiah and in Psalm 137. He doesn't know how to reconcile that with the grace that we find in the New Testament. But friends, Andy Stanley is a teacher that you need to mark and avoid. It's my job as a shepherd to protect the flock from false teachers, and Andy Stanley has departed from the truth that his father preached. We do not need to unhitch from the Old Testament. These passages remind us of the immense holiness of God and his hatred of sin and his wrath against those who, in the end, stand in opposition to him, his kingdom, and his people. When these people hurled insults at God's people, they were insulting God 
in his glory. Romans 12, 19, Paul says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice that vengeance and justice here is never executed by the believer. Even these serious imprecatory prayers were prayers for God to act, for God to do something. While we are faithful to the mission of God and when persecution and opposition comes our way, we must never take revenge in our own hands, but we must pray for God to execute his justice on those who oppose him. I want you to hear me clearly. We must pray for God to save sinners. That is what the whole restoration of Nehemiah points to, the restoration of God's people who would bring us Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. Yes, God saves sinners, but also God execute your good, wise, and holy judgment on those who hate your name and harass your people. What we see here is how we ought to respond to persecution. We go to God in prayer. We, we don't retaliate. We don't get into defensive. We don't enact revenge. We go to God. We pray to God for him to execute his holy and perfect judgment on those who hate him. We pray for God to have our backs. Those who rise up against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and who essentially mock God in the end will get what they deserve. They may be allowed for a time to persecute believers. They may be allowed to time to harass the church. There may be a time of opposition to those who trust in the gospel. But these persecutors in the end will have a very bad end. We go to God in prayer and we stay focused on the mission. And that's what we see happening. So number three, as we face persecution, we must work with purposed determination. Here they've been attacked, they're being ridiculed, and they've prayed to God, they've asked for God's justice to be done. And verse 6 says, so we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I love this right here. They were persecuted, they were hated. And what do they do? It says they built the wall. They didn't cower in fear. They didn't quit because it got hard, because they're having some opposition. They built the wall. Don't let opposition distract you from the mission. Don't let the haters derail you. Church, do you remember what I committed to in February when I was here? preach from 2 Timothy 4, I think, to preach the word, to preach the word. And, and, and in that time, as Paul shared that with Timothy, he said, look, there's going to be people who oppose you. There are going to be people who don't want to listen to the truth. But Timothy, guess what? Preach the word. Stay faithful to the mission. There are things that will come up 
that I know will seek to derail me from that. There will, things, there will be opposition that come that will seek to derail me from commitment to preaching the word of God. But when persecution comes, we keep preaching. We keep building the wall. We keep focused on the mission. Now, the work here in this verse is not completed yet. It seems to be halfway done. It says that it was built to half its height, so they're, they're working on, on, on continuing to build it. But it says the people had a mind to work. The word mind here in the Hebrew is the word lave, and it refer, referring to the will, it's a strong determination. When referring to emotions, it speaks of our appetites and our courage. These men, with passion and determination, kept at the work. Persecution didn't derail them. They worked with purposed determination. They knew what they needed to do, and they had the courage in the face of opposition, and they had a stout determination to get it done. Now, I may have to uh, hand in my man card after this, but one of my favorite movies is the movie Seabiscuit. Are you familiar with that movie? Now, I come from horse racing uh, territory in Kentucky, and so uh, I just learned recently that actually Phoenix has a horse racing track. Um, it's just been, been bought out by somebody else that horse racing will continue. But um, I like this movie because in that movie, uh, this, the, the team had everything against them. The, the horse was too small to be racing. The jockey was too big to be riding that small horse. And, and this was just a, a bad deal. They, 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 they shouldn't have been doing this. But as the movie portrays, the, the horse would lag behind. And as the horse would, would get a, and I don't know how much of this truth to this in the real life, you know how Hollywood is, but it would depict the sea biscuit, the horse, uh, getting eye to eye with another horse and, and, and having this look of determination as if a horse can really do that I'm not sure but would have this determined look and then would would just plow forward and win the race it's a really good movie you ought to see it if you haven't but I share this story because it brings out the idea of of determination in the face of hardship being determined to continue in the face of difficulty See, persecution comes from outside of us. And just as Nehemiah, they begin to be ridiculed, mocked, and scorned. And sometimes that persecution can affect us internally. As Christians, when we're persecuted, maybe we begin to internalize the insults. You know, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't build Maybe, maybe we don't deserve to be building this temple. Maybe, maybe, maybe if a fox jumps on it, it will fall off. Maybe we should just quit now before we're a reproach to everyone else. I think of Brendan McDonough and the story that I shared earlier is he's being told, hey, why don't you just quit and go home? You know what? Maybe I should. Maybe I should give up. Maybe I should stop. A lot of times it's... As Christians, persecution comes, we, we internalize, we can internalize the things that come our way. 
you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I really shouldn't be sharing the gospel. You know, they, they know my past. Who am I kidding? I haven't been to seminary. I'll, I'll probably completely botch a gospel presentation if I even tried to share it. No, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And so we begin to doubt. Dear church, don't let external persecution become internalized. Be resolved to, to keep pressing on in gospel mission with purpose, determination. When persecution came, they, they built the wall. They, they had a mind to work. I pray that First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg would have a mind to work. Would have a mind to keep pressing forward in gospel mission. Because the world desperately needs it. We are in a broken world, broken down by sin, much more broken than the wall they were rebuilding. And may we press on. Number four, as we face persecution, we must work with prayerful dependence. So they continue to build the wall. Verse seven notes that when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to close. They were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance to it. They upped their game on persecution. They started with ridicule and jokes and, and comments trying to get them to derail from the mission. And now they're saying, hey, that didn't work. You know what we're going to go do now? We're going to go fight them. What does Nehemiah do? Well, before we get to that, I want you to notice something. You, you may not notice this in the text, but if you, if you ever look at your maps in the back of your Bible, these people, Sanballat, Tobiah, Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, if you really look on a geographical map, essentially what's going on, Judah's surrounded by these people. They've got persecution pressing from all sides. They're surrounded by people who hate them. So now there's this conspiracy together from all these people surrounding Judah to fight against Jerusalem. Seemingly, they don't stand a chance. So what does Nehemiah do? He prays to God. He prays to God. And we saw that Nehemiah's first reaction here in this particular passage was to pray for God's justice. We saw in chapter 1 that Nehemiah prayed for months seeking God's direction. He said a silent prayer before the king in chapter 2, recognizing his dependence upon the sovereignty of God. And here we see him praying again in the midst of opposition. Nehemiah knows that they're dependent upon God. But prayer doesn't mean an action. Notice what they do also. It says, we prayed and we set up a guard against them day and night. While not necessarily involving persecution, I, I love the story of George Mueller. Anybody ever heard of who that is? George Mueller 
There's a man who lived centuries ago in, in, in England, and um, when he became a Christian, he felt the calling and the leading to start an orphanage. But in that, he, he decided, he's like, you know what, I'm not going to fundraise, I'm not going to campaign, I'm not going to ask any human being for anything. What he would do, is he would take every matter to God in prayer. So from the land that he needed to workers that he needed to everything that he needed, he would pray to God. And it's an amazing story of God supplying everything that, that he needed. And there was one particular time I remember in, his, in, his, um, in a biography that's written about him. One particular day that they were going to run out of milk for the children. And he didn't know where it was going to come from, but, but as was his habit, he prayed to God, God... We need milk. Shortly after that, a milk truck broke down outside of the orphanage and said, look, we, and knocked on the door and said, look, I'm not going to make my delivery. My truck's broken down. I can't, I can't get to where I need to go. Do you guys have, have need of this? Can you guys use this? It's an answer to prayer. Now listen, I, I'm not saying that God always answers our prayers like that. Sometimes God's answer is a no or a not yet, but he does answer our prayers. Nehemiah knew that God was sovereign and supreme, and so therefore he prayed. He knew that God was the God of heavens, that he was sovereign over King Artaxerxes, and he was sovereign over Sanballat, Tobiah, and their allies. So the first thing that he did, the first thing that he always does was to pray. When we are persecuted, our first response is to pray. Our first response is to go to the God who is bigger than anyone or anything that might oppose us. When we have a correct view of God, that he's sovereign over all things, that he can turn the hearts of kings where he wishes, that he can calm storms, that he can overthrow wicked men in justice, we go to him in prayer. Our response in persecution must always be to pray. But that's not the only thing Nehemiah did. So number five, as we face opposition, we must work with confident trust and determined obedience. As Nehemiah prayed, he notes how the strength of the men were failing. They had been working hard. This is hard and grueling work, and now they face the threat of opposition. So emotionally, we, that's got to be weighing on them. He even says, look, we're, we're not able to we're not even able to rebuild the wall. This was, this was hard work. The men were growing weary. And then Sanballat and his coalition of persecutors stepped things up even more. Verse 11, it says, They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. Notice that they've stepped up their game in their persecution. They started with ridicule. Oh, if a fox comes on this wall tonight, it's going to fall down. No, you know what we got to do now? We got to go kill him. And they've taken some steps. They've amped up their persecution against God's people from ridicule to now threat of murder. They, the people get reports of this. Verse 12. When the Jews who lived near them came up and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you will turn. Hey, 
They're coming to kill you, and they're coming from all sides. And they say this over and over and over again. So Nehemiah equips them. He says, I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. Then he says this, when I saw their fear, let's just acknowledge that there's a, their fear is legitimate at this point, right? Their fear is a legitimate fear because they've, their, their lives have been threatened. Their families have been threatened. Here they are. They've, they've committed to this work of God. Hey, we believe God's in this. We're going to do this. And now people want to kill us. They are, have a legitimate fear. But Nehemiah rises and he speaks to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people. And he says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Trust in him. Trust in this God. Remember him. And in your remembrance of him, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, then each of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. Then God did that. God frustrated the plan. God turned the persecution away. But even after that, they stayed prepared. As we see in the text continuing on, that that the workers, they'd be building the wall, but they would have their sword on their belt. Half of them were working and half of them were standing guard. Even the, even the leaders of the people were, were watching. <coughs> even at the end, Nehemiah says, look, when, when we went down to the waters, to, we went down to take a bath. We didn't even take our sword off. We must have confident trust in God. Remember the Lord but we must be also determined to obey him. We see here the balance of trusting in God's sovereignty and accepting human responsibility and not making foolish choices. They've received murderous threats. Praying to God reveals their confident trust in him that he will fight for them. Nehemiah even even says that later on in the text. He says, when you hear the trumpet sound in verse 20, Rally to us there, our God will fight for us. They're trusting in him. They're recognizing that he is sovereign. But part of trusting in God is understanding that the fact that God has given us brains and we must be wise. In verse 16, we see from that day on, they continue to be prepared They kept working. They stayed faithful. We get even a glimpse of godly leadership on the front lines protecting people from the attack. Those who are building the wall and those who are carrying the burdens or the stones for for rebuilding, they're, they're carrying it with one hand, they're working with one hand, and they've got their weapon in the other. This is our God will fight for us. I want us to see the balance of God's sovereignty and human responsibility here. The balance of prayer and wise decision making. 
Their holding of weapons, their putting on armor, was not a lack of trust in God. They believed that God was supreme and even affirmed that God would fight for them, but that did not cancel out the need to be prepared. I want you to think about this in a, in a small way, in, a, in, our, in our church, just in a, a very small way, where we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility play out. Man, we see terrible things that happen in churches across our country, don't we? Especially in regards to, to children. And we can pray all day long, Lord, protect our children. Lord, keep our children safe. Protect our little ones. And we ought to do that. But we just had a meeting just a few weeks ago about policies and procedures to put in place to keep our children safe. That, that doesn't mean we're not trusting in God. That doesn't mean we're, we're submitting to him and affirm that he's sovereign. No, we believe that. But sovereignty doesn't cancel out human responsibility and being smart and wise and doing what we need to do. Likewise, when it comes to gospel proclamation, we may end up in hostile situations, but we can plan for that and we can do what's best to protect the people of God. So we pray and we seek God. We remember how great and awesome he is, but we make wise plans so that we can continue to advance the gospel in the face of persecution. Church, as we seek to restore that which is broken, we will face opposition. But we must be faithful in the midst of opposition. And we must go to God in prayer. And we must be determined to advance the gospel and not let opposition keep us from obedience. And may we trust in God's sovereignty and understand that in his sovereignty, he's given us the ability to make wise decisions so that we can advance the cause of Christ through gospel proclamation and take part in this mission to restore what is broken? Let me share some specific application to different groups here. I love that we have a diverse body of believers here, from older saints to little tiny ones. Let's speak to our older saints for a moment. You may experience opposition even as an older believer. You're retired, living in your glory days. And why would you commit to the body of Christ? Why would you be faithful to Jesus? You, you may hear the enemy's lies, and you may even hear from other people. Oh, you've, you've put in your, your time. You, you deserve to give yourself a break. You don't need to go to church every Sunday. Go out and enjoy the lake or whatever it is you might enjoy. But your devotion to Jesus and your faithfulness to him will be rewarded. Stay faithful to the end, even when opposing voices try to stop you. A word to parents. Our culture is against parents. They don't want you raising your kids to know God's word and to hear the gospel. Even in our neighboring state in California right now, there is a, a bill that will probably be passed into law seeking to enact legislation that would make it illegal for a parent to refuse their child's gender reassignment surgery. Can you believe that? That is happening in our country. If this were to happen, then you could have your kids taken from you if you refused to, to allow your kid to change their gender. 
This is the country we now live in. And at times, church, I'm going to be honest, at times I feel defeated and deflated when I think about what's happening. But parents, opposition will always come. But you must be faithful to Christ and his word. No matter what the threats are, whether from friends, schools, or government, stay the course. To our young adults and students, many in your generation don't even believe in God. Or if they do believe he exists, they live as if he doesn't matter. Friends, the gospel is true. Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And this gospel has implications for your everyday life. Even in a culture where everyone your age is turning from God and his word, the challenge to you is to live counter to the culture. To live a life of repentance and trust in Christ. Live in obedience to God's word for God's glory. I know that's going to be hard. If you commit to that, I guarantee you will have opposition. Stay faithful. Pray to God for strength. Rely on his spirit to strengthen you and be faithful in the midst of opposition. Near the end of Jesus' physical life, he writes in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Take heart, church. Remain faithful even in the face of opposition. Because guess what? We know how the story ends. We know that Christ is the final victor. Jesus will prevail, and Scripture says the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Jesus wins. And so we can be faithful even in the midst of opposition. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, as our men begin to Come forward for the Lord's Supper, Lord, we, we just ask that you help us to stay strong in the face of opposition, that we would trust you, that we would trust in your good and wise sovereignty, that you will fight for us, that God, that we would do what's necessary to, to stay the course, to be faithful in the midst of persecution that may come our way. Lord, persecution's already here to Christian families. Persecution's already here in our country. But Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us to, to be faithful even in the midst of opposition for your glory and the advancement of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.